You're listening to the Recoveredish Podcast. I'm your host, licensed therapist, Amanda E. White. Hi, hi. Welcome back. I'm excited today to chat with you about how to break free from all or nothing thinking. And really what I mean by that is how can we embrace more nuance in our lives? It's a topic that I'm really passionate about because I struggled with it a lot growing up and my life has really dramatically changed as a result of breaking free from it. And it's something that I think a lot of us are struggling with. Nuance is not always a super popular topic. I think sometimes it can be misinterpreted and I'm really coming from the perspective that if you can embrace more nuance in your life, your mental health will improve and your life will be better. So that is the place, that is the context that I'm coming from. And I wanted you to know that up front because the context of things really matters. And the context often is a part of nuance that is most easily left out. And a really good example of how context matters is your therapist may be able to say certain things to you that your parents or your partner can't because you don't trust them in the same way. So the whole relationship you have with your therapist, the trust that you've built up allows your therapist to have certain conversations with you to be able to maybe gently point out things that you need to work on or places where you're holding yourself back that if if someone else in your life said it, you may not listen You may be offended or you may be hurt. And that is one of the really powerful things about therapy is that you know that they are kind of an impartial third person. They don't have skin in the game whether you do something, whether you make certain decisions. For example, your therapist could talk to you and help you understand the ways in which you and your partner, for example, have an unhealthy relationship. But if your mom talked to you about it, you may feel like she has an agenda, which would shape how you listened to the words she said. So your mom and your therapist could say the exact same thing. They could say, hey, the way you and your partner fight is really unhealthy and I'm worried that you guys aren't going to be able to work it out. But it is going to feel so different for you based on who says it, based on, again, the context So I explained that example so that you know where I'm coming from. I don't have an agenda here except that I care about your mental health and that I want to help you break free of black and white thinking because it is something that changed my life so, so, so much. One thing also to know up front, I've been recording and re-recording this episode a bunch, and nuance is complicated. So it is a complicated topic to discuss. So this may be a little choppy. And give me some grace here because it is, it's hard for me to talk about such a complicated topic in a simple way. (laughs) So I think it's helpful to start with what is all or nothing thinking? It is a cognitive distortion. And a cognitive distortion is essentially a bias or a mental filter or shortcut that negatively impacts our mental health. Now, Our brains are really designed for as many shortcuts as possible. And that is because your brain takes in an insane amount of information every day. Just visually, your eyes take in so much. Your ears, all of your senses have so much sensory coming in that if your brain were to allow all of that sensory information to come in, it would be so overwhelming. You wouldn't be able to live your life, do the things you need to do, survive essentially. Your brain has a specific mechanism that actually protects you from being aware of everything that's going through. And that mechanism is called your reticular activating system or your RAS. So it is much easier for your brain to categorize things in two camps as good, bad, right, wrong, all, nothing. And that's because instead of looking at all of the nuance between all or nothing, all of the shades of gray, your brain can just choose between two options and that saves it a lot of time and energy. So with small decisions, that's not always a huge deal, but it does prevent you from really exploring all of the other possible decisions or all of the other possible ways that you could do something. So your brain creates shortcuts to save you time and energy. Your brain is always trying to take the path of least resistance. 
This is why habits are so powerful because when you get into a habit, you know, a positive or a negative habit, it becomes second nature because your brain just wants to keep doing what you're doing to save you time, to save you energy so you don't have to think, okay, I'm going to pull out my toothbrush. I am going to put the toothpaste onto the brush. I will brush back and forth, up and down. It's just you brush your teeth. It saves you time. It saves you mental energy. Shortcuts aren't necessarily a bad thing. The problem with shortcuts, like habits, is that when you get into a pattern that is unhelpful for you, it is really hard to break. And your brain doesn't know the difference between a helpful or an unhelpful habit or pattern. So your brain has no preference over which one it is because the truth is your brain's biggest agenda is to keep you alive. It doesn't care whether you are fulfilled. Your brain doesn't care about you living your best life. Your brain doesn't care or have a preference for your happiness necessarily. Your brain cares about keeping you alive and doing it in the most efficient way possible, which means saving energy. And this cognitive distortion really becomes an issue also when you don't realize that you are doing this because then you're robbed of the ability to be able to make and see all of the different choices between those two choices. And you start to see everything as kind of being a fine line between good and bad. And it leads us as a result, when we see things as all good or all bad, we are much more likely to be triggered, to be angry, to be upset, to have big emotional reactions, and to have that happen to us very quickly because we don't have time to process the situation. We just fall into the habit of how we respond to something being good or bad. Instead of seeing most of the world as people who are flawed and complicated and have good and bad parts of themselves, it leads you to feel like there are good people and there are bad people and you have to figure out the difference and there is no room for nuance. And what's interesting about social media is that you can think of social media's algorithm is kind of like your brain and doesn't have any interest in anything other than keeping you there as long as possible because the more time you spend, the more money that can be made off of your time. Your time is what is being paid for. Your attention is how social media companies make money because it is how advertisers make money. So the algorithm doesn't care whether it's serving you things that you hate or you love. Both of them are your attention and that's what it cares about. So there isn't a distinction. And that is often why social media really tends to favor things that aren't nuanced, that appear very black and white, that are very polarized because it means more attention on our parts. And then it goes even further with it. It curates an algorithm that is exactly specified to you to the point where if you go on someone else's TikTok account, for example, it will seem like a completely different app because they are being served videos that are completely different potentially from the ones you're being served. It even goes so far these days into Google. Your computer, Google, the internet, browser will save your search history and your preferences. And as a result, search engines favor certain websites that you tend to go to more often or beliefs that you already have. And it serves you that information because again, Google's an algorithm. It doesn't care about you knowing quote unquote the truth. It cares about serving you content that you are interested in one way or another, but the interest could be that you hate it too. That is part of the reason that we are all... I think struggling more with black and white thinking. I think one thing that also really gets lost sometimes and is really important when we're talking about embracing nuance is that the context in which people make decisions and things happen matters. And often online, we pull out one piece of information, one quote, one statement. And when you remove it from the situation, when you remove it from the greater conversation that really impacts its meaning. For example, someone could be making a joke, but taken out of context, it doesn't sound like a joke. Someone could be talking about how much they love their child, but then also talk about how they're struggling and what some of their difficult thoughts are about their child or things they're struggling with. But if you separate it from them talking about that they love their child, if those two pieces aren't together, it's easy to misinterpret and think that that parent doesn't love their child. But at the same time, I I understand how difficult it is because 
we take in so much information and our brains cannot possibly process all of that information. So our brains have to take shortcuts and then the media also has to take shortcuts. I think there is something to be said for lots of things are purposely taken out of context and our time and attention is what makes money for advertisers, which causes algorithms and news sources and the media to favor clickbaity articles because the more scandalous or intense or wild the headline is, the more likely someone is to click on it and read it. Even if they don't like the headline, even if they're angry about it, that intense reaction is makes them more likely to click. It's the same way with social media. Most of the time, it's not always the things that are really great that do really well on social media. It's the things that cause the most intense reaction from someone, whether they are arguing against it, whether they are defending themselves, whether they are clarifying that that isn't true. It's the intense reactions that cause things to do well and be seen by then more people. So that's what's really hard when a company is trying to make money and they're trying to be successful and they're competing towards other companies that are all doing that. Since we can't always take in so much information, at the same time, a company can't publish if an interview happened. They can't publish word for word what someone says. They can't always publish the whole interview. They have to kind of summarize. And when all of our information isn't coming directly from a source and it's just coming from people summarizing sources, it can get distorted really easily and is like a game of telephone. So whenever possible, I think trying to go to sources that people source, whether that is just in terms of what you're reading or watching online, but also in your personal life, instead of listening to your mom say that your dad is mad at you or your friend say that your other friend is mad at you, it's going to be a lot better for you and them to go directly to the source so that you can resolve that disagreement directly rather than through other people because things can get distorted and you're just listening to someone's interpretation of something that happened. And I think it's really interesting because we all have different interpretations. So something can happen and you ask different people about what happened and they will all give you different interpretations. And it is not that one person is right and one person is wrong necessarily. A lot of times it is just a different interpretation. But if we forget that there are different interpretations of things, we then interact with what someone told us or we interact with someone's interpretation instead of what actually happened. And one way that you can really improve your mental health is starting to separate that and to recognize that there is a difference between what happened and our or other people's interpretations of what happened. Often, especially when it comes to our own interpretations, it happens where we talk in that way too. When we're telling a story about what happened, we're sharing most of the time our interpretation of what happened, not just the data, not just the facts. And when I'm saying facts, I'm talking about if someone tape recorded what happened, you saw a video of it without anything added extra, without saying even this person is mad, right? That is technically an interpretation. What there is is this person said X. You can only really say this person is mad is if they said, I am mad. Often our interpretations are correct or other people's are correct. We can read between the lines, but the farther out you get, the more people have an interpretation of an interpretation of an interpretation, the more disconnected you're going to be from what actually happened. So it's important that we even think about it for ourselves. For example, your boss sends you an email saying that they want to talk to you tomorrow. Often a lot of us can jump to, my boss is mad at me, I did something wrong, and then you start reacting to that statement that you said. You start reacting to your interpretation of what happened instead of reacting to the data of what happened, right? The data is just that your boss said that they wanted to meet with you, but your brain is taking that shortcut. It's so in the habit of just quickly saying boss is mad rather than boss said they want to meet with you tomorrow. That's more steps. That's harder for your brain to compute than just boss is mad. So a big part of this work is consciously trying to slow down, consciously recognize when you're interacting with the data of what happened and when you're interacting with your or someone else's interpretation of what happened. 
And it's not just that. Then often we can go into, we're not just interacting with the interpretation of what happened in the past. We are then projecting what we think will happen into the future. We often then will skip several steps ahead too. And we will think, okay, my boss is mad at me. That means I'm going to be fired. If I'm fired, I'm not going to be able to pay for my rent. If I'm not able to pay for my rent, I'm not going to be able to stay in my house. And then I'm going to need to move. And what if I'm not able to find a place that accepts dogs? And then I'm going to have to give up my dog. And then I'm going to move and I'm going to give up my friends and on and on and on. And we spiral so far down into the future. And that's where you have to try to take a deep breath and consciously come back to the data of what happened. Rather than when we take several steps in front, we are reacting to that worst case scenario that is so far from the event. One of my favorite exercises to do when I'm spiraling, I'm getting stuck in the interpretation of what's happening and I can't seem to get grounded in just the data, is I will take a piece of paper And I will divide it into three sections. And in one column, I will write down the data of exactly what happened. So if there was a video camera there, what happened? This can be a little tricky sometimes because even our memories can take shortcuts in remembering what happened. So the sooner you actually do this to when it happened, the more accurate you're going to be. But as best as you can, write down just the data, the facts, no interpretations, what someone said, as as many non-interpretations as possible. Sometimes there are things like someone's tone or something like that that are a little hard because there is data in that, but you don't always know if your interpretation is correct. So get all of that out. Then write down how your body feels. Check in. Is your heart racing Do you have a lump in your throat? Do you feel nauseous? Notice how your body feels in that moment because how your body reacts is also going to impact how your interpretation shows up. The more tense your body is, the more emotionally activated it is where there is a physiological response happening in your body, which happens whenever we have an emotion, the more difficult it is going to be to separate what happened from your interpretation. And then write down your interpretation. Write down what you think all of this means. Feel free to really go all the way into it. Then take a step back and recognize the difference between the data of what happened and what your interpretation is. Notice if you're spiraling into thinking about how it's going to impact your future, how that will then impact the next step that you're thinking about and how you're spiraling forward. And if you can come back to that and recognize what actually happened and what your interpretation is, it is going to help ground you a little bit more in the nuance and in recognizing that those two are not the same thing. We tend to collapse them and think they are the same thing. So our work is separating them and recognizing that those are two distinct things. One thing can exist and the other thing that can exist, right? Your boss can say they want to meet with you tomorrow. And you can feel like your interpretation of that is that they're going to fire you. This doesn't mean that one thing is true and one thing is false. It means that one thing is the data of the situation and another thing is our interpretation of it. So let's get into some signs that you may be struggling with all or nothing thinking. One of the most obvious signs is if you think about the language that you use, whether you're saying it out loud or the way that you think. If you often use the phrases always or never, that could be a very big sign that you are stuck in this mentality because it's extremely rare in life that there are situations where everything or nothing applies, where always or never would be accurate words to describe a situation. Just because you never wake up on time doesn't mean that there haven't been times in your life, I'm sure, where you've been on time and you've gotten up when your alarm has gone off. But when we use these words, you can see how it impacts that filter we have. Because if you start using the words all or nothing or always or never, it's really going to pull you into that dichotomous thinking, that polarized thought process. That's the really interesting thing about cognitive distortions. While I'm not saying that you have total control over your thoughts, a lot of times when it comes to intrusive thoughts, we don't have control. We all have automatic thoughts, and I'm a huge, huge proponent in what you think doesn't define you and doesn't mean that's who you are. 
And I think we judge our thoughts way too much. At the same time, this is the nuance. We can start to use our thinking patterns as clues of what's going on. And if you start to notice what you that you're often thinking of things in all or nothing ways, this is going to shape how not just you understand yourself, but how you see the world. And then it'll also shape the actions that you take. And I think this is where hopefully you can start to see how this is a filter because if you start thinking of things as always or never, all or nothing, it is going to impact how you see yourself and how you see the world. Just like a screen on the window impacts the clarity that you see outside of the window. It's a filter. So that's one of the major signs of this. And it's something that you can also recognize in yourself and you can start to practice trying to use additional words. Instead of using words that are completely absolute, start using words such as sometimes, often, this may happen, this may not happen, potentially. Some of these words that allow more nuance in conversations and in the way that you think about things. Even when you're referring to yourself, if you notice yourself saying, I am someone who is just like this, this is who I am, see if you can start to say to yourself, it's a small difference, but saying to yourself, in the past, this is how I've been, or traditionally, this is how I've been. When we're stuck in this cognitive distortion, we can be so quick to think that we know everything about ourselves, everything about other people, and everything about the world. And as you can imagine, when we think we know everything, there is no room for learning, for hearing and understanding other people's perspectives, and potentially most importantly, there's no room for growth. If you know everything about yourself, you're not going to be able to be curious about why you may be having a certain emotion. If you think you know everything about your partner, you're not going to be able to be compassionate and try to understand what they're going through, or why they're feeling that way. Another sign that you may be struggling with this is that you're really rigid in your thinking and your expectations of other people. For example, if you feel very nervous and scared when someone says they're going to do something and then they're late or they don't do it exactly how they said they would, this could definitely be a sign that you're struggling with it. If you text someone and they don't text you back right away and you jump to, they hate you, they're never going to text you again, the friendship is over, that is a sign that you're jumping to such extreme conclusions and you're not seeing the gray in the fact that maybe they're busy and that's why they're not texting you back. Maybe they forgot to text you back. All of these middle shades. Another sign of all or nothing thinking is that you get really demoralized by a minor setback or inconvenience. If your flight is delayed, it feels like the end of the world and you worry that you're never going to get to the destination you're going to and you want to just give up and, and go home and not even go on the trip. Or if someone gives you a piece of feedback at work, you assume that you are going to get fired and that there is nothing that you can do to improve or come back from this. If you are in a conflict with your partner, you really struggle with thinking that you will be able to resolve it with them and you assume that this is over and that there's no way for you all to move forward because you're either amazing and great or everything's falling apart and there's no way that you're going to stay together. I think this is a really big one with relationships, especially if you're not someone who grew up with healthy conflict modeled to you, either with your parents or with other people in your life or with friends or siblings. Siblings can be a great way for conflict to be managed and you build trust that you'll be able to survive having still a relationship with your sibling after you all get into a fight. So if you didn't grow up with any of that or if your family was afraid of conflict, they hid it, they were quick to be like, no, no, everything's fine, everything's fine, you know, kiss and make up with your sibling. This could definitely have impacted you, and now you're afraid of conflict, especially if you don't have a lot of experience with it. And as a result, if you've never seen conflict be worked through successfully, you're likely to feel very scared and overwhelmed by conflict because you think that it means that everything is over. The really interesting thing about conflict, though, is that often conflicts can actually help relationships in our lives be stronger. If you never have any conflict with your significant other, you're not going to have trust that you're going to be able to navigate difficult times in the future. 
if you never have any conflict with your friends, you are going to feel like you have to walk on eggshells because you don't trust that you can tell the truth or they can tell the truth or you both can have negative feedback for each other and get through it. When people get through conflict, they're closer through the process because not only do they have that trust, but they're able to get their needs met better. It's why so many people are afraid of boundaries and they tend to be really rigid in their boundary setting. You know, we talked about this with the Jonah Hill boundaries episode. Highly recommend you go back and listen to that if you haven't. And I talk about the difference between demands and boundaries. And I think a lot of us are so afraid of conflict, so afraid of the gray and the nuance. We can't deal with having boundaries that are more healthy and more flexible, which is the goal of boundaries. Really rigid boundaries often don't work especially in romantic relationships when there are two people participating in that relationship. We can't just have boundaries that favor one person because for the boundaries to work, both people need to compromise and both people need to be united in what works for them and what doesn't. And it's rare that exactly what works for one person is exactly what works for the other person. We have to find that middle ground. Another sign that you may struggle with this is that you take things really personally. This is actually another cognitive distortion that's very connected to all or nothing thinking. It's called personalization. It's when you take everything personally and you think everything that's happening is connected to you. This is something I really struggled with in my addiction. I really felt like the world revolved around me, but not in a positive way. I think people think sometimes if we hear the word self-centered, for example, that it means that we have really high confidence, but that's not always true. We can be very centered around ourselves or suffer from personalization without feeling good about ourselves at all. I think especially in women, it often shows up as we think we're the worst at everything. And if you think about it, that is a form of self-centeredness or personalization because we are centered on ourselves. We are thinking everything's about us, even if the thing is bad. When I was in my addiction, if someone said something in a tone I didn't like, or if someone was in a bad mood, I would assume that they didn't want to be friends with me anymore. They hated me. I did something wrong. I was constantly looking for signs and evidence that people didn't like me because I didn't like myself. And I had a lot of shame over the things that I was doing in my addiction. Often this also shows up as us thinking that other people are thinking about us all the time. They may be thinking negatively about us all the time, that we think that that they don't like us and they're talking badly about us, or our boss is spending time trying to get rid of us at work or fire us. When a lot of times people aren't thinking about us, they're thinking about themselves. So one way that we can combat personalization and self-centeredness is when we are thinking that people are mad at us or making up a story about something that's happened that involves us, Start recognizing that you are making up a story about it. That doesn't mean the story isn't true necessarily. We don't know. But this is a really good place to come back to what is the data of the situation? Like that example that I gave, what are the facts? And what is my interpretation of the event? Right? The facts might be that you walk and people stop talking. Your interpretation is that they don't like you. Those aren't the same thing. You could be right, but you don't have enough evidence to prove that. So when you can start to separate those, that helps. The other thing you can do if and when appropriate is you can tell on yourself and ask people. This works especially well if you have a good relationship with the person, whether it's your friend, your family member, your significant other saying something like, hey, when you didn't text me back, I made up that you were mad at me or I made up that I did something wrong. I just wanted to check in about that. Was there any truth to it? That can be something that's so powerful because you get to directly hear from the source what that person's experience was, and most of the time, it's not about you. Just using that language of the story I made up or my interpretation is, or using the phrase, it occurs to me, can be one of the most powerful ways to handle conflict in relationships because you're not blaming the person. If you just say to someone, like if I say to my husband, you didn't respond to my text message, so you don't care about me, it's going to be really activating for him. And it's likely that he is going to say something like, that's not true and be defensive over my interpretation because it isn't his interpretation. Even if it's something that you know to be true. For example, let's say my mom told my brother that she was annoyed at me because I came to dinner late. 
even if you know that to be true, for example, if I walk up to my mom and I say, I know that you're annoyed because I was late, often when you just come up to someone with that fierce of a statement, it really makes them defensive in a lot of ways because they can kind of argue semantics with you. They can say, well, that's not what I meant or who told you that or that's not fair or I'm not mad, I was disappointed, right? Like there are all these ways that they can become defensive which totally avoids the actual conversation that you want to have. So it's really easy for people to get defensive and you end up talking about other things in the process rather than focusing on what is important. Instead, I would recommend using that phrase saying, it occurs to me or it feels like when you talk to my brother instead of coming to me directly that you don't care about me or you're avoiding me. Then the conversation can shift and be focused on your interpretation rather than arguing over whose interpretation is correct. You can focus then on what happened and how it's impacting you. And then the other person can share how it's impacting them. This is one of my absolute favorite, best pieces of advice. Start using that phrase in conversation rather than just accusing someone of something or stating your interpretation as fact, start owning that you are frustrated, not just by what happened, but start sharing what your interpretation is so then they can share what their interpretation of the event is. And then you can find a middle ground. Another very clear sign that you are stuck in all or nothing thinking is that you struggle with perfectionism. While we think perfectionism is just this obsession with being perfect, because perfection is an impossible standard, what often happens to us is that we give up halfway and we don't accept small progress. We have such a high bar for where we need to be. We get so demoralized by the fact that we're not living up to it, that we don't count any of our progress or any forward movement or anything that we do positive as a success or worthy of celebrating. As a result, we are constantly in the experience of feeling chronically not good enough, which can lead us to feelings of depression, anxiety, and hopelessness. This is very intertwined with motivation too, because we set this really high bar for ourselves. We feel like we need to be perfect. It's really hard to feel motivated if you don't allow yourself to celebrate and acknowledge the small progress. It's really hard to break down your goals into small, manageable things and feel like you're making progress when your bar is so high. I talk a lot about how to set goals and how to deal with avoidance in episode two. If you haven't listened to that, definitely go check that out. I break it all down. We mistakenly a lot of times think that if we set a really high bar for ourselves, that we will motivate ourselves to do better. We think that we can motivate ourselves by beating ourselves up, by demoralizing ourselves so much that we will feel so terrible that we will be motivated. The problem is, is that this isn't realistic. Even if you can temporarily create change this way, over time, you can't sustain change that comes from beating yourself up or shaming yourself because this eventually causes a shame spiral where you feel so bad about yourself, you need to actually escape the feelings of shame by doing something to soothe yourself or feel better. For example, this is really, really common with addiction. It can be common though with pretty much any other pattern in your life too, where you feel shame about not being good enough. So then you beat yourself up, you swear you're going to change again. Then you try to change, but it's so overwhelming. You can't make enough progress to feel better. So then you feel terrible about yourself. And then you seek out the exact same thing often that you were trying to change. For example, if you drink alcohol, you're going to go back to drinking alcohol to try to soothe yourself, even if that's the thing you're trying to change. If you're procrastinating and you're trying to motivate yourself to do work, you're going to deal with the stress by procrastinating. If you're trying to exercise to change your lifestyle, you're going to not exercise and procrastinate doing that because you're going to fall back into old patterns that are familiar when you're beating yourself up because we can only stay in that shame spiral for so long. So it creates this really sick cycle where actually the more you beat yourself up, the less likely you are going to be able to change. 
it's kind of like a finger trap. The harder you try to escape the cycle by beating yourself up, the tighter it's going to be, the more stuck you're going to be in this cycle. The only way to break free out of the perfectionism shame spiral is to start being compassionate to yourself, to take some of the pressure off, and to break things down into small, manageable goals. So many of us swing between over-functioning and under-functioning if we struggle with perfectionism. We say that, think that our house needs to be perfectly cleaned, otherwise there's no point in cleaning it even a little bit. We say we have to exercise for an hour every single day or there's no point in even going for a walk around the block. And the truth is that that just isn't true. It may feel true in our brains. When we set that huge goal, we're getting this excitement of the possibility of completely changing our lives. But how people actually change is by doing small things that add up over the course of time. It's not fun. It's not exciting. We all want a quick fix, but this is how people really change over time. Another way we can push back against our all or nothing thinking, especially in regards to relationships, is we can allow people to share their perspectives that are different than ours. This could look like seeking out things that you don't agree with or that are different than what your beliefs are online and reading articles to purposely expose yourself to it. It can feel really uncomfortable when you do this, but a lot of times it's your brain stretching to accommodate a different point of view and help see some gray. You can also do this in your interpersonal relationships by asking people about their experiences, especially people that are close to you, who you assume you know everything that's going on, or you assume you completely understand and agree with their whole perspective. If you can help them, if you ask people genuine questions and allow them to share, it will help you to be able to see them as complicated and nuanced rather than all good, all bad. I want to be clear though, this doesn't mean that you have to agree when you hear different conflicting beliefs. And those of us that are people pleasers, it may be especially hard to do this because we're so easily swayed by other people. And this is where coming back to your values is really important so that you can hear other people's perspectives, but recognize that they can believe that, but you can believe something differently because of your values and your core beliefs. So just because you listen to someone's beliefs or you are interested in their perspective doesn't mean you agree, doesn't mean you need to take it on. It's actually a really great exercise to do this because it can help you get in alignment with what your values are and help you understand why you make the decisions and the choices that you do. Because the truth is we are all so different. We all make decisions differently. And we tend to believe that people who are like us are just like us and people who are different are completely opposite than us. The reality is there's lots of nuance through this and it can be really helpful to understand how other people think differently than you, how they come to different conclusions, We tend to assume everyone wants to be treated just how we want to be treated. But actually, the best thing we can do for our relationships is treat people how they want to be treated. And we don't know how they want to be treated unless we start asking them. So I wanted to also get into some questions. Someone wrote in to me and said, I tend to schedule my week so I do nothing on some days and everything on another. Is this a problem? Well, my answer to you is if it works for you, it works for you. So I do think some people are more like this. I myself tend to be someone where when I'm done, I want to be done and I would rather have more jam-packed days and then have days where I do less. That being said, I think it is important to talk about something called over-functioning and under-functioning. I've talked about this on Instagram before. Essentially, I think that with all or nothing thinking, we can get trapped in this over-functioning, under-functioning cycle where we will over-function because we are anxious and we want to get all the things done. And some of us just have a tendency when we're anxious or something is in crisis that we want to do everything and take on all the things. And some of us in crisis tend to kind of go into more of that, right? If you're thinking about fight, flight, freeze, go into more of that freeze response and underfunction and not feel like they can handle anything. And a lot of times when I talk about this, people will say, well, what if I do both? I overfunction a lot and then I underfunction a lot. And when I'm talking about underfunctioning, I'm not talking about just not being as productive as you wish you would. I'm talking about, you know, skipping work, going late to things, uh, canceling plans excessively, 
bed rotting, I guess, which there's nothing wrong with, but just these things where you're spending hours and hours or multiple days just unable to get out of bed, unable to function, completely crashing, feeling super, super burned out. So if you're someone who feels like you do both, my advice to you is that you have to stop it at the source of overfunctioning because your overfunctioning is causing your underfunctioning. You are burning yourself out so much, you cannot take any more, and that is causing you to be completely unable to function later. And you can't make yourself more productive if you are burned out. You can reduce the amount you're doing when you're in your overproductive phase. It is much easier to do that. So I would look at trends of your life. I would look at, I mean, you could, if you have, you know, a calendar or a schedule or something like that, look at what the trends look like and see, is it that you're over-functioning and that is causing the under-functioning? Or is it just that you, I mean, if you may not be able to tell from your calendar, but if you start to maybe keep a journal or look at your calendar or take notes, start to recognize if you are getting into patterns of over-functioning so much that then you crash and burn. It also, if you tend to fall into this pattern, you also may struggle to ask for help. You may struggle to delegate things. You may want to do everything yourself because you feel like you can't trust other people to do it right. You may feel like it's a waste of time to teach someone something because it's going to take you longer. And you instead have to start shifting and focusing on Yes, it may take more time for me to teach someone how to do this, whether that's at work, whether it's, you know, a friend that needs something for you, whether it's your partner or your roommate or something, but you are going to get the time back in the future when they know how to do it and you actually teach them how to do something. If you are someone who just under functions and just struggles and responds to stress by shutting down starting to create good habits and staying on a schedule is going to be so, so important for you. So many of us feel like schedules aren't cool. They're not fun. They're not sexy. I have been someone who has really been into like my creativity and I've been someone who's like, I'll stay up all night if I'm creative and I just need that creativity to spark. And since having a child, that hasn't been possible. And I've been shocked actually at how much better my life is when I stick to more of a schedule. I used to really think that I was thriving on not having a set bedtime, on not waking up the same time every day. And if that's you and that's working for you, no one could have told me it wasn't working for me before, so I'm not trying to get you to change. But there is a biological reason why if you're trying to work on your sleep schedule, for example, going to bed at the same time every night, waking up around the same time every day, we hear it time and time again. It does make a difference. It does positively impact your ability to fall asleep and stay asleep. And the whole point of habits is that it makes it easier to do things because your brain doesn't pause and think about it or hesitate. It just goes into doing it. This has negative impacts too. If you get into bad habits, you can't stop yourself from doing bad habits. You're more likely to continue. But you can use your biology, so to speak, to make your life easier by setting up habits and schedules for yourself, especially if you're someone who underfunctions or, like I said, bops between the two. It's important to be honest about what your capacity is and try to start practicing saying no, because often too, that can be something if we bop between the two, we struggle to say no, we are people pleasers. And Even just getting into the habit of when I work with clients who are people pleasers and struggling, one of the like pieces of homework I sometimes give them is start practicing saying no. It can be something small, right? It can be if if someone asks to borrow something, if someone asks if you could do them a favor at work and, and do something, or if someone invites you somewhere even, just practicing either saying no, or you can also practice saying, let me get back to you. And that little moment of saying, let me get back to you, can give you the space to check your calendar, to notice, is this something that I have the capacity to do? And be a little bit more mindful about your yeses. The next question is, how do procrastination and all or nothing thinking go together? 
Great question. They often do go together, especially if you think about the over and under functioning I was talking about. You can see how it would directly lead to a cycle of procrastination because you it becomes this self-fulfilling cycle where you're exhausted, you crash, you burn, you wait until the last moment before you have to do something like a work task or getting something done in your life, then you rush to do it because you have so little time to do it. You have to burn yourself out very quickly to do it. Then you crash again, you need to rest, and it creates this whole cycle. And it's really hard to get out of physically also just when you don't have those routines, when you don't have that schedule built up. You don't have that. You don't really learn how to do things ahead of time or how to do small things. So one thing I just want to say is I was that person for a really long time. It definitely fell in there with, like I was saying, when I didn't, when I struggled with my schedule and things like that. But in general, I think one thing that is a misconception among procrastinating is that people kind of say that they like procrastinating. And maybe some people do, but I also wonder if you actually like procrastinating or you just aren't in the habit of not procrastinating and knowing how good it feels to be ahead of schedule with something. Because I used to procrastinate all the time. Now I really don't. It gives me anxiety to procrastinate. I don't like doing things in a rushed way. And it is so freeing to be able to know that you are ahead of schedule on something. Like with this podcast, I typically record them a few weeks ahead of time. And if I didn't do that, I think I would probably say things like, well, the inspiration doesn't come until right before I have to. And it can feel like that if you aren't used to nurturing your inspiration ahead of time. So I would argue that you feel like you're most creative right before the deadline is due because that is when you have trained yourself to be most creative. If you gave yourself freedom to experiment and think about different tasks you had to do, you know, for me, for example, like record part of a podcast and see if it works and come back to it and have more time with something – I think you would notice that your brain can also be creative or can be motivated earlier than you think. But a lot of times this whole idea of motivation, we we really think that we have to wait to want to do something. We think the motivation will just come. I talk about this a lot in episode two, Recovery from Avoidance, if you want to go back to that and hear more about it. But instead, it is really the action that continues to build that motivation. So I don't know if it's really you're more motivated when you have less time to do something or it is just that you have to do that. And as a result, you have more referential experience of feeling motivated, of feeling creative right before that happened. The other big thing about procrastination that people don't know is procrastination at its basic level is a form of avoidance and stress relief. So you feel stressed about this upcoming project you have to do, and there are two ways you can deal with it. You can either avoid the project and make it tomorrow's problem, and you feel temporarily better, or you can do a little bit of work on it today, and you will also feel a little bit better, but you will also have done something and taken some steps towards it. The problem is, is people don't recognize that they're stressed and that their coping skill to deal with stress is avoidance. You can change your coping skills to deal with stress. You may have that initial reaction for a long time or for forever to avoid things. When I get overwhelmed, my typical go-to is I want to run, I want to hide, I want to quit, I don't want to do things anymore. But because I know that that's my pattern, I can then choose to take action in the face of that. And because I've practiced this for a while, I trust that I will feel better after I take some action Rather than if I had never done that, I wouldn't believe that I would feel better after taking a little bit of action. So I hope that was helpful. I could do probably a whole episode on procrastination. So let me know if you all would be interested in that. Okay, and finally, I'm going to answer the question, how do people get stuck in the mindset of all or nothing thinking? I don't think there's one way that this happens. 
obviously social media and the internet has made us all more polarized. A lot of us have more niche communities because of the internet. There's this whole conversation about how monoculture doesn't exist anymore. And that was one of the really interesting things about Taylor Swift's Eras Tour and the movie Barbie. It was this actually rare monocultural event that wasn't just specific. And it was something that you could kind of talk about with almost anyone walking down the street, which is cool and and rare, unfortunately, these days. So that's definitely contributing to it. I think the other thing that people don't talk about is when you are struggling with your mental health, you have the tendency, we all have the tendency to be a bit more rigid and black and white in our thinking. Because when you're really vulnerable, being really sure about something or being really all or nothing about something is a way that we can protect ourselves and feel a little more sturdy. Like if you are trying to, I know for myself, when I was getting into recovery, I couldn't handle the gray. It wasn't helpful for me to think about if I could drink again, would I drink again? That decision fatigue was so exhausting for me that I needed to just come from a place of alcohol doesn't work in my life and I cannot drink alcohol at all. So I think there are certain things where it can be helpful. Like it's why I think a lot of times when people just first start setting boundaries, they're really rigid with their boundaries because they're so nervous and struggle with that nuance of it that they need to kind of overcorrect a bit to find that balance first. It also sometimes can look like people who are younger, you know, if you're less mature, you can be a little bit more black and white. If you think about growing up as a kid, kids tend to be more black and white. They hate you. They love you. You're amazing. You're awful. Just because it takes maturity to see the nuance. It takes emotional intelligence to understand that there's lots of things that are gray and things aren't all good or bad. But it's also very disorienting to realize that or destabilizing, I could say, because it's scary. If you don't have, right, like I think a lot of us can relate to this idea of when we realized our parents weren't perfect and how different life felt when you start to realize or you become an adult and you realize, oh my God, adults don't know what they're doing either. It's really destabilizing and scary. So that is why a really big thing I talk about a lot and I also work with clients a lot about is trying to find that nuance, also trying to practice. It's called psychological flexibility, where you can see things from different perspectives. You can recognize when you're overcorrecting and try to find the middle, but sometimes that overcorrect is important as you find the middle. The problem is, is when people get stuck there and they don't back off, even though they're stronger mentally or they are older and they just kind of get stuck there. So I hope that this was a helpful episode for you. As always, let me know if there's any episodes or topics you'd like me to cover. And I'd love to hear what you think about this episode. Tag me on Instagram, leave a review, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. To suggest an episode topic or support my work, visit amandaewhite.com. If you're interested in getting therapy from my practice, visit therapyforwomencenter.com. We're based in Philadelphia, but we have therapists serving 27 states across the country. 